1: Did you ever hear the story of the bearded, sandal-wearing weirdo, the one that the conservative stalwart of the Supreme Court defended and the member acknowledged as one of the liberal lions attacked? A bearded man decided to express his displeasure with America by bringing a flag to the 1984 Democratic Convention then held in Dallas. He dumped kerosene all over the flag and, screaming down with America, he lit it on fire. But his was not a partisan or anti-Republican display. As he burned it, he screamed, Reagan, Mondale, who will it be? Either one will bring World War III shocked witnesses to the event. One of them recovered the pieces of the burnt flag and gave the remains a full military burial. The state of Texas was not amused by Gary Lee Johnson. They prosecuted him for flag burning. Johnson and his lawyer, William Kunstler, and the ACLU, took the case to a series of courts and eventually to the Supreme Court of the United States. Two justices, both considered heavyweights, on the court considered this case at this time. John Paul Stevens condemned the action, and Antonin Scalia ruled that Gary Lee Johnson could not be prosecuted. Scalia said it was never enjoyable to side with bearded, sandal-wearing weirdos in his decisions, but the Constitution says that kind of speech is protected. And as Scalia says, if you do it the old way, you sometimes have to rule on things you don't like. The old way Scalia refers to is his originalist or textual interpretation of the Constitution. John Paul Stevens felt that the flag, the American flag, was a unique symbol. Also, that Johnson's conduct was being prosecuted, not so much an act of speech. In this case, we see the styles currently in battle in the court of today. Stevens, non-ideological, liberal, liberal. On some issues, most of the issues facing the court now, conservative and a few others, flexible, practical, concerned with the effects of law, concerned with the details of cases. Less concerned, although not entirely unconcerned, with what founders had written long ago. Scalia concerned with reading the words of the Constitution, one that made free speech, as in the First Amendment, a pure command. Stevens just announced that he would retire, the fourth longest-serving justice. A justice who, think about this, is only one justice removed from Louis Brandeis, who Woodrow Wilson appointed. See, John Paul Stevens was picked by Gerald Ford in 1975 to replace William O. Douglas, a veteran liberal on the court, discoverer of the privacy possibilities in modern constitutional law a man who said that the environment should be entitled to legal representation, who threw out a ban on the Communist Party, the longest-serving justice ever, William O. Douglas, appointed by FDR. He left the court in 1975 after suffering a stroke. He tried to work through his disabilities and simply could not. It was William O. Douglas who replaced another long-serving justice, Louis Brandeis. In Stevens' career, he has seen seven presidents, as many as Douglas did. Ford, Carter, Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Clinton, George W. Bush, and now Barack Obama. Born in 1920 always had an interest in the law, went to law school, served in the Eisenhower administration, became a well-known antitrust lawyer. He clerked with Supreme Court Justice Wiley B. Rutledge. Not one of the better-known justices. He served just a short time on the court in the 40s. Rutledge was the only significant law school dean, a dean at the University of Iowa, who actually supported Franklin Roosevelt's court-packing plan when it was announced. FDR remembered, and six years later, he put him on the court. Rutledge did not have that many significant decisions. He did dissent in a case that permitted a school board to pay for students for their bus fare to a Catholic school, Everson versus Ewing Township. John Paul Stevens was no Wiley B. Rutledge. He will be remembered not only for his time of service, but that he would be involved in most of the major issue of the latter part of the 20th century and today. Well, he was not on the court for Roe v. Wade. He sided with a constitutional right to abortion in all of the subsequent cases. He was on the court for Bakke versus the Regents of California, the case which threw out quotas in higher education based on race. He decided with the majority in that case that Bakke should be admitted. But he also sided with the majority in Grutter v. Bollinger that a college could use race as one of many factors, among others, in a test score in admissions. He dissented in Parents versus Seattle, where the court threw out racial diversity standards in schools altogether. He dissented in Heller that a city, and said that a city had a compelling reason to regulate guns. And in Citizens United, that the people had a right to regulate campaign spending to avoid corruption. In South Dakota v. Dole, Stevens argued that the federal government could encourage states to raise drinking ages through funding. Key modern decision determining the role of federalism today. In League of Cities vs. Usury, he dissented that Congress could regulate over a state's own workforce. In FCC vs. Pacific, he said, there was freedom of speech indeed, but not to the extent that you can say bad words when kids might be listening. The last decision, and the flag-burning decision, reveals a little bit about John Paul Stevens' style. He's been typed as a liberal judge, and it turns out that way, but he's also been a practical one. In a court with several purists, textualists, originalists, and highly strong supporters of rights and what's in the Constitution, Stevens looks at effect. If we rule this way, what will happen? He is, as one newspaper said, the last common law judge. Looks at the facts of the case, and he's not afraid to rule one way in one case and another in another. I think the loss of Stevens is missed by vote counters on the court who see the majority not changing, and thus this is dog bites, man. No news, really. That's true. But the loss of Justice Stevens is the loss of Heft, of a strong opinion writer who can go toe to toe with Chief Justice Roberts, Scalia, Thomas. In the Bush v. Gore decision, where the Supreme Court reflected the division in the country. Stevens wrote the dissenting opinion. The court had said that by picking different methods to recount in different counties and accepting those recounts, the Florida Supreme Court was violating the 14th Amendment rights of voters. Stevens disagreed, indicating that by not protecting legal votes that were misread by machines, it was the Supreme Court who was violating the 14th Amendment rights of Florida voters. The Bush v. Gore decision was one of the most contentious and public debates in the Supreme Court. Lesser known was Scott v. Harris, where Stevens dissented for a very important practical reason. The case involved a sheriff's deputy who stopped a fleeing car by ramming it. The court decided in an 8-1 decision that the plaintiff's suit against the deputy should go no further. It was clear what the plaintiff had done, and that the only way to stop him was the deputy. Uh, was for the deputy to ram the car. It was clear from the video. Deputy's actions did not amount to excessive force. The Supreme Court relied on on the videotape. In his dissent, Stephen attacked the fact that the court had relied on the videotape. He did not contest whether the deputy had used excessive force or not, he said. As a Supreme Court, that's not our job. Only a jury can find fact. The Supreme Court must resolve itself to constitutional issues. If history is any indication, the president will nominate someone who is inclined to vote on cases in a similar fashion as John Paul Stevens. It should be no surprise, given the Senate is in Democratic control, such a nominee should be approved. But he also might want to consider someone with Stevens legal style as well. Narratives of political campaigns are not new. Theodore White's Making of the President series mixed journalism and storytelling to give readers an idea of the vibrancy of campaigns, especially the insides of them, the part that's not seen on TV. Game Change a book written by John Heilman and Mark Halperin, with sources among campaign staff and possibly candidates themselves, have put together what will probably be one of the definitive 2008 campaign histories. Therefore, I think it's worthy of reading, and now that some of the media furor over it has passed, it's worthy of discussion. The name is appropriate, and I do think, as a thesis, the 2008 marked serious game change. If not in how American elections are conducted, would definitely marked political game change with the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom was wrong on oh so many points in the 2008 election. A man who was a state senator when Hillary was elected the United States senator and when John McCain first ran for president would beat both of them and take the White House. Two years have passed since this election that we're talking about. And it's fitting that now that we are in the thick of the president's second year in office, the health care debate, the midterms coming up, that perhaps a campaign book isn't of interest, perhaps. Yet, as one newspaper said, the book takes us back to what, for political junkies, is an easier time. The two-year election of 2008. So, this book is a rich treat. This will not be a traditional book review that I give here. I think that listeners to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics should decide for yourself whether you should read or whether you like a book. The press coverage on the book focused on the unimportant juicy gossip Harry Reid using the N word, Joe Biden dropping the F bomb, John Edwards and his strange videotaping mistress. These and other aspects of the book were surprising. But I've pulled out a few points within the book without giving it all away, some that I think are important and that can be discussed in the context of what's happened in light of history. The first surprising revelation in the book is that while Hillary Clinton was the presumptive nominee and the one talked about in the media for almost eight years, she was not personally decided to, as to her course of action until New Year's of 2007. At that point, Barack Obama had already decided, personally at least, though the campaign was still getting set up and he was in the process of convincing his wife to get on board. That Hillary Clinton was thinking about not running is somewhat news. She was clearly the front runner in the hearts and some minds of many in Washington. But supposed frontrunners' names have declined before. Cuomo in 92, Powell in 96, Ted Kennedy in 72 and 76. When Obama met Colin Powell, he asked him why Powell didn't decide to run for president. Powell responded simply, I'm not a politician. Senator Clinton did not have that excuse. She was a politician. She'd just run and won two Senate races in New York. She could fundraise. She had a good campaign staff. She knew she could win. Her objections were more personal. The press attacks, the schedule, the disruption to the life of her daughter, Chelsea, all of that weighed heavy on her. She had become a bit of a powerful senator as well, and giving that up for a run for the presidency as powerful as the office is. Had its downside, her hesitation did allow Obama's team to organize quietly in November and December of two thousand six. In my opinion, Hillary Clinton ran up against three trends which she may have been blind to. One is strategic voting. the ire of the right wing in American politics did produce a strong reaction in the left and made her. Some kind of a martyr in a sense, and made her supporters really like her. But there was a counter trend, a significant anti Hillary feeling from those who thought she was a pariah for the right, that she would bring right wing voters out magically and increase turnout among the opposition. Why do that? Mix that. With her alienation of the anti-war Democrats who just simply, not just for strategic reasons, but just simply didn't like her. And those were two powerful negative factors against her. She didn't quite see that, although she did make reference to AIDS that maybe Obama was building some kind of movement in the cornfields. But while she was saying this, she was touting her national security credentials and went to visits in Iraq and Afghanistan. In this, she ran for the general election too early. But it's hard to see any other path for Senator Clinton at this time. She was trapped here. She had to combat the argument that she was beatable in the fall in the general election. She had to show that as a Democrat and as the first woman president, she was strong on national security. But when she did that, Obama took leftward space that she gave up. In fact, just by opposing the war, Obama appeared left. Well, his policies were in some cases more conservative than Clinton's. On top of this trap, there was the Clinton thing, something that I I thought was present among people in politics and voters, but not discussed as much in the media as the other factors. It wasn't that Hillary was so bad, but two Clintons and two Bushes in the past 20 years of American governments, is that what we were to have? A 30-year stint with an election, with no American election without a Clinton or a Bush in it. I do think that the Clinton strategists were blind to the fact that, unlike the Republican Party, Democrats tended to look for the novel ones. Bill Clinton was unknown prior to 1991 by the larger product, certainly not by the intelligentsia in Washington. Who was Michael Dukakis? Jimmy who? That there would be an anti-Hillary option in 2008 and that was a card that one could play all the way to the top, was not surprising. Basically, both Obama and John Edwards tried to go for this space. Hillary versus the other. It was a matter of being the other and collapsing the field among those running against Hillary Clinton. Obama felt, for instance, very strongly, that if he won Iowa, the frontrunner could not come back. That once he won the Iowa primary, the nomination process was over. Clinton's fundraiser, Terry McAuliffe, felt that if Hillary won Iowa, she was inevitable. In the end, everyone was looking at Iowa in the 2008 race, though looking at it differently. So for a race that involved game change, Iowa, the first state, was just as important in 2008 as it was in 76. But in a way, both sides were wrong. Obama completely underestimated the tenacity of the Clinton machine. It was foolish to think that Hillary Clinton, senator from New York, former first lady, would give up after losing even one significant state. Even during one stretch of the election, where Hillary lost 11 primaries in a row, and the Obama campaign was wondering why they wouldn't quit. Clinton was still going for late wins. A surprising person helped Obama make his decision and get the nomination. David Geffen, entertainment mogul. Geffen was a big Clinton backer. Slept in the White House during the Clinton administration. But Geffen felt strongly about Hillary. She can't win, and she's an incredibly polarizing figure for the country. Geffen told Maureen Dowd, and his comments appeared in the newspaper. This split up Hollywood, which is a very powerful group for Democrats, especially in the primaries. You must be nuts, Warren Beatty told Geffen. To the Clintons, Geffen's actions amounted to betrayal. But to Barack Obama, Geffen's endorsement and the $1 million fundraiser he held helped put him in equal status with the frontrunner. The other mystery helper, apparently, was Harry Reid, majority leader of the Senate, who very early on, according to the book, called Barack Obama into his office. Barack Obama, who hadn't been the best team player on the Senate, probably figured he was going to get a lecture. But Reid simply said, Look, you're not really cut out for being a senator. You need to run for president, and you need to take on Hillary. Like many others, Reid was afraid Hillary would be polarizing, and that she would lose. A historical parallel to all this might be when Richard Daly... The powerful Chicago boss, close to indictment in 1976, but still a power broker. Uh, Three of the last four Democratic nominees, Kennedy, Johnson, and Humphrey, and helped them get the nomination, though he didn't support George McGovern. He decided to get behind the Georgia governor, Jimmy Carter. And that was a big factor in Carter's rise, winning the Illinois primary, and staving off any kind of stop Carter movement during the convention. Now, on page 227 of the book, there's a surprising minor thing that I learned. The antipathy for a Clinton political empire, as I discussed, whatever the popularity of Bill Clinton among Democrats, would really manifest itself in South Carolina. Challenged by a heckler, Bill Clinton, speaking on behalf of his wife, lashed out at candidate Obama. The backlash from a former president attacking an up-and-coming African-American politician helped President Obama to win South Carolina. But the backlash also annoyed Clinton. The Clintons had always worked hard in the African-American community, and he felt that the attacks were unfair. The media was siding with Obama all the time. He had a surprising friend, according to Game Change, President George W. Bush. The two, according to the book, talked all the time. And when 43 was bored, he would call 42, to chew the fat. The conversation went something like, Hey, buddy, I know you're coming under attack. The president consoling the former president after the South Carolina events. Clinton treated him to a tirade, which Bush patiently listened to. Presidents talk to ex-presidents. We know this. Gabber Clinton talked to Bush's father all the time, H.W. Bush. He talked to Gerald Ford sometimes. He'd call Jimmy Carter probably less than the Republican presidents, and he talked to Nixon quite a bit when he was still alive during Clinton's first year as president. LBJ called Truman frequently, and he called Eisenhower and talked to him. Eisenhower talked to President Kennedy. It's likely likely that President Obama is talking to Bill Clinton on various issues, talking to George W. Bush on various issues, and Jimmy Carter on some issues. It's a job presidency that few people have. Only people who have the job know what it's like. The Democrats had a successful convention in 2008 in Denver, where 100 years before they nominated William Jennings Bryan for a not-so-successful general election run. Not a hitch this time, but for that reason, it might have also been boring even though Obama made his acceptance speech in a stadium, a rock concert-like arena. And so maybe it shouldn't be surprising that in the next morning after Barack Obama's acceptance speech, any convention bounce was erased by the shocking news. John McCain had picked Sarah Palin, governor of Alaska. She'd only served as governor for two years, less than two years. It is surprising, and was surprising, that John McCain chose Governor Palin. What should not be surprising is that John McCain's VP pick was shocking. The plan of the McCain campaign had always been to shock the world with the VP pick. They knew that in terms of media attention, in terms of supreme buzz, they were getting beat every day by Barack Obama. McCain's campaign was boring, and the pick needed to be unconventional to change the political landscape. Despite whatever had been talked about in the media, according to the book, McCain did not even consider Tim Pawlenty, did not even consider Mitt Romney, Charlie Crist, the governor of Florida, Mike Huckabee, none of those people. He wanted a shocking nominee, and who he really wanted was Joe Lieberman. Democratic senator from Connecticut, former vice presidential candidate in 2000. When Joe Lieberman appeared in campaign events for McCain during the Republican primary in New Hampshire and South Carolina, Lieberman justified it because none of the Democrats running for president had asked him to campaign. McCain developed a respect for him. Still, Lieberman was very surprised when an aide called him and said he may be on the short list. He doesn't have to do that, Lieberman said. The aide told Lieberman he was serious. Well, Lieberman said, if he's serious, I'll be happy to go forward. And so, you almost had it. Shocking, historic event. The first time, really, since the modern political parties have been established, where a former vice presidential nominee of one party would be running on the ticket with another. You can go back to the example of John Calhoun, who sort of ran, uh, served under for vice president under uh, John Quincy Adams and then Andrew Jackson. So in a sense, uh, ran under two parties, the National Republican and the Democrat. But John Calhoun really didn't change his positions or his take on things and ended up feuding with uh, with Jackson. Just wasn't the same type of party system back then. It's really never happened and would have absolutely been shocking. Lindsey Graham, a chum in the Senate with Lieberman, senator from South Carolina, was so eager that he let the story leak. Talking to a group of conservatives, he ran it by them. The response among the right of the Republican Party was outrage. If the McCain campaign does that, they will have destroyed the Republican Party. They cannot make the nomination with that level of outrage. Lieberman's positions on Iraq, though it might be supportive of the Republican Party and the Republican president, could not erase his positions on domestic issues and abortion. Historically speaking, McCain was enthusiastic about the choice of Governor Palin. He never publicly gave anything but support for her. He was pleasantly surprised by the initial boost in the polls the campaign got from picking her. And in this, I must say, I am somewhat happy to see, he still continues to appear and rallies at her and says positive things about her. Now, this is because this is a trend that I've noticed over the years. Joe Lieberman was chosen by Al Gore. Al Gore did not endorse him to president for president in 2004. John Edwards was picked by John Kerry. John Kerry did not endorse John Edwards in 2008. You know, isn't it logical when you choose a vice presidential nominee that you have great respect for that person? They should be somebody you'd be thinking about endorsing later. So I guess it's just good to see consistent support for one person from John McCain. I don't know what he'll do in the election coming up. I don't know what Palin will do in the election coming up, but they've appeared at rallies together, and I I suppose that's a good thing. It is common and it is unthinkable to do anything else in these modern times, but run for president seeking two terms. This is why it's surprising from the book that McCain, at least at one point, considered making a one-term pledge as a way to get over the age issue. He agreed to it, then he dismissed it. But the idea proposed by his campaign staff was that he would serve one term, fix the problems of the nation without political considerations, and then go home. It's a noble gesture, but he was right to hesitate and to reverse this decision during the campaign before announcing it for a couple of reasons. First, there is not much precedent for this one-term pledge. Celebrated presidents had two terms. Presidents that people thought were fairly non-political or got a lot done. Washington established it was okay. Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt... Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Reagan. Only a few have pledged one term. Polk, Hayes. I and mean, Polk is probably the most successful one among those presidents that pledged one term.
0: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you
2: Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Secondly,
1: an atmosphere of lame duckness denies the president influence. How much can you do for me, the congressman who's going to vote for one of your bills? If I know you're going to be out soon. Should I be going to a favor from the next president? That's probably what's going to start to happen after two years of your presidency. Third, elections are consuming. Open seats even more so than an incumbent running. Why involve a primary and an election that the media is going to pay even more attention to because it's going to have all these new faces, which will start to dominate the news cycle by the third year of your term? It is true that because of the modern cycle of elections, you may have made a one-term pledge impossible. Television may have changed that aspect of politics. That instead of having very quick campaigns in the summer of an election year, they're going to start years before. Fourth, I think it's defeatism. I think it's fatalism. If you go out and say, I'm only going to have one term. Like, running for president is a bad thing. The Constitutional Convention thought about second terms, and they came to that conclusion, that a one-termer, if you limited a president to one term, they would lack ambition and, to some degree, accountability. Hey, I'm not going to be here anyway. You'd give him an excuse to do very little. Fifth, attention-wise, it does the reverse. Such a pledge would draw attention even more to his age. So that was a surprising revelation in the book, but one that we didn't see in public. With no score in the first presidential debate, it was sort of a draw, maybe a slight Obama win in the media, we go to the VP debates. The expectations were extremely low for Palin. After some TV press interviews, it was probably seen that Biden was going to win the debate. And for Joe Biden, the expectations were, as the campaign staff said, somewhere around Jupiter. Now here, the Obama campaign got concerned. Sarah Palin was memorizing, locked in a room with her cards. She was learning about world leaders and about national issues and how to respond to the likely questions they would get. But what may be surprising is that the Obama campaign was just as concerned about the performance of Joe Biden. Although he was a skilled senator, skilled debater, he had a tendency to go off on tangents. They did a full dress rehearsal in a set made to look like the set of the vice presidential debate. First, White House Communications Director, or now White House Communication Director, Anita Dunn, did a quick run-through, acting as Palin. But to actually play the role of Sarah Palin in the rehearsal, the Obama campaign chose an ally and a seasoned politician, Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm. She would actually stand in for Sarah Palin in the debate rehearsal. She practiced intensely. She studied YouTube videos of Palin speaking and in her gubernatorial debates in Alaska. But even that wasn't enough prep for the Obama team, just having Granholm prepare. They took it so far they actually had Granholm practice with a fake Biden. So the woman that was going to do the rehearsal for the VP debate practiced first with a fake Biden before she got to stand in for the dress rehearsal. This turned out to be a good idea because Granholm was very good in the rehearsal and revealed that there were certain weaknesses in Biden's debate style. Using all of Sarah Palin's kind of Affectations kept Biden on the defensive and using certain one liners to argue Biden's great points and just throwing Biden off with certain comments. Biden was prepared for the big policy debates, but not for the minor things that Palin might ask or say. The campaign staff knew they had to avoid Biden getting trapped in a quote rabbit hole, talking on and on about a subject he didn't know enough about that Palin had introduced. Meanwhile, at McCain-Palin headquarters, Palin was actually, and the staff were actually happy with her progress, memorizing flashcards and doing well with the lines that she had to say. In the end, both sides, in the end, the prep helped both sides, and both sides played cautious. Biden, as instructed, ignored Palin. Palin avoided attacking Biden, and tried not to lose. And the result was, no win, no lose on both sides. The 2008 election may not have proven the importance of the vice presidential candidates debate, but the old adage that people vote the top of the ticket may have been tested more than usual. Sarah Palin was very much an issue in the 2008 election. First a plus for McCain, and then by the end of the election, possibly a minus. Probably a minus looking at exit polls. Speaking of VP choices, Joe Biden was not preordained from the beginning. Having briefly run himself, Biden dropped out and then decided not to endorse either Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. He talked to both of them and became a little bit of an ambassador between the two sides. When he saw Barack Obama's speech on race in March of 2008, he became a bit of a fan. But still, he never urged Hillary Clinton to back out of the race, only to decide for herself if she had a chance. He vaguely told her, if you still have a 30% chance, maybe you should keep running. Otherwise, you had to quit. When Hillary Clinton did end her race, he suggested to Obama that he pick Hillary Clinton for vice president. Biden wasn't alone in this suggestion. There was much talk in the media, much talk among Democratic primary voters, Neither the Obama or Clinton campaign really took that suggestion very seriously. Hillary said, no way, never, they'll never do it. But Obama did think about it. He ran the Hillary decision through the process. Obama was a big process person, and he didn't want to at least not consider it. His aides hated the idea. Even the aides that disagreed on many other points hated the idea of Obama-Clinton. Michelle Obama hated the idea. Obama, in the end, decided to go with Biden. Blue collar, gray hair. In a previous podcast on vice presidential choices, I talked about the reasons for the picks, and they're almost always the same. Factional or ideological balance within the party, home state, experience to boost the nominee, something the nominee's missing, or buzz. One thing we can rule out in the 2008 pick of Joe Biden is buzz. It didn't create very much. In terms of a home state, Delaware can be ruled out, although it is said that he may have helped in Pennsylvania a bit, being originally from that state and with Delaware sharing a media market with Philadelphia. Did he offer experience? Of course he did. And he offered the perception of experience, though it's not clear that Barack Obama felt he needed you know, such great advice, and the two didn't exactly get along well in the Senate. Biden certainly represented no particular faction within the party. It was a safe pick. In fact, the book reveals that John McCain was relieved that there was no Obama-Hillary ticket, as was the McCain staff. The buzz that that would have created would have drained the energy out of the media. And since we now know what McCain was planning, a serious VP pick, that would shock the world. I think it would have had less impact picking Governor Palin or even picking Joe Lieberman if Barack Obama had announced Hillary Clinton. Well, good for Joe, McCain said to his aides, but Obama's never going to get a word in edgewise. McCain knew Biden well working in the Senate. What would President Obama's administration be like if Hillary Clinton, instead of being his main foreign policy representative, traveling throughout the world, was the main domestic player? as vice president, helping to push through his health care reform? Would she have pushed for a more aggressive health care reform bill? Would the campaign actually have been easier, as McCain and McCain's staff thought, if it was an Obama-Clinton ticket? Would there just have been other problems later in November? These counterfactuals are very difficult. We'll get back to the politics of today and future podcasts, but I did want to treat you to a little timeward trip to the 2008 election. Not too long from now, we'll have another round of primaries starting. I want to thank you for listening. Website's my history can Facebook site where you can comment. I wanted to announce that we had a My History Can Beat Up Your Politics listener who puts out the Masked Liberal podcast and he has interviewed me. We talk about a wide range of subjects, particularly the health care bill, how President Obama rates among other presidents, who would I would have most liked to see be elected president who wasn't. So we answer those questions. It's the Mass Liberal podcast. Uh, you can find it on iTunes. I also have a link to the interview on the Facebook site. So I've been interviewed on the conservative show, Solid Principles, and now on The Mass Liberal. Been interviewed on Al Radio, College Station. If anybody else has a podcast, you know, I'm trying to help out other podcasters. This is a very important media form. Nobody controls this. We've got to help each other out. I'm happy to do interviews where I can. I want to mention about the archive. It's 999 still. It's about to change to fourteen ninety-nine shortly. Do encourage you to purchase the archive now. Uh, if price is your motivation. There's a great deal of material in the archive. One of the things you might find surprising is I actually used the archive myself. I'll go back and listen to old episodes, and I don't quite remember everything. I don't have all of this knowledge in my head. I research things and then record and put it away. I've been doing this since 2006, so I'm actually finding myself going back to the archive and now using it as my own sort of library to bring something up that's occurred no, I think you could benefit a lot from it, too. Some of the things we discuss are, are covered in there. And I want to thank you for listening.
2: Hello, all. Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week, I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.